0: Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast, alongside Sun Devil Source publisher Chris Cartman. I'm host and editor Carrie Crowley. Chris, you're back from San Antonio. You were there to see the Sun Devils escape with a 32-28 victory over UTSA, the Texas San Antonio. Roadrunners. I think we probably both underestimated UTSA in terms of its overall talent, its capabilities, and its scheme. The Roadrunners put up an excellent fight against ASU. The Sun Devils needed a 16-point comeback to ultimately move to 3-0, but Todd Graham said after the game that he's never been as proud of the way a team came back and won a game, and uh, it was against a group of five opponent, one that has never beaten a Power 5 school, and ASU probably made it closer than it needed to be.
1: Yeah, they put themselves behind the eight ball, losing the turnover margin 3-0. Most teams that you play that you lose a a margin like that, especially when you give it up twice inside your own 25-yard line on special teams, you're going to probably lose. I think if ASU uh, was equal or ahead in the turnover battle, then the game would have played out much more along the lines of what we expected from a score standpoint. ASU probably would have won by about three touchdowns or more. Uh, But 14 of 28 Points by UTSA were directly related to giving up the ball with bonehead mistakes on the punt by Kalen Belage and DeShawn Hayes, and I think Manny Wilkins looked more like the quarterback that we expected, especially first game on the road. But UTSA, to your question, Kerry, did impressed me I I thought their schemes were pretty sound it's a first year coaching staff so they're still getting assimilated and everything but uh the talent's not as bad as as we've seen from some teams that have been competitive with ASU or like UNLV when ASU lost a, a while back this is actually and you would expect it but uh from a team from Texas they had pretty good athletes for being uh, a Conference USA type of opponent, and definitely ASU didn't make it easy on itself.
0: I think it's really interesting how much turnovers impact the outcome of of a game, because we said against Texas Tech, we both predicted that the Red Raiders would beat ASU, but we said if ASU was plus two or more in the turnover margin, then the Sun Devils would probably win. They were, and they did win, and I think we both thought that this game was going to be kind of a blowout for ASU, but then all of a sudden, the Sun Devils are my three in the turnover margin, and it's that close. And really, you you reference those two turnovers that ASU had inside of its own 25-yard line, both on punt returns. Kalen Balazs was the first player that Todd Graham sent out to field punts. He bobbled the ball, or I believe he touched a ball that was rolling when he shouldn't Bounced have. twice. And then Gump Hayes in the second half did the same. Hayes hadn't really practiced as a punt returner, but he did last season, so ASU had some degree of comfort in sending him out there, and that led direct to 14 roadrunners points that's half of their overall output
1: yeah um the Kalen Balazs thing was really inexplicable he had practiced at punt return during the week we knew Tim White would probably not play and Kalen Bellage of course is the team's kickoff returner so they figured maybe he'd be able to handle that role it's when you have a guy who scores eight touchdowns a week earlier you're probably thinking mm, let's get the ball in this guy's hands even more <laughs> right but uh, it turned out to not be the smartest decision because he tried to field a, a bounding punt, had bounced twice. There was four defenders in the area. Doesn't even get two hands on it, I don't think. And UTSA scored. I think that ball was recovered uh, right around the 15-yard line or so. Um, three plays later, they score. I think it was the 11, actually. Then uh, they replace Belage with Hayes, and he fair-caught a ball earlier, seemed fine, but then he tried to run up and catch... Uh, a punt in the early in the second half this was after UTSA had already scored a touchdown Mm -hmm. with its first drive of the half and then um he just couldn't pull it in off his shoestrings the ball was on the 24-yard line the very first play after that uh they uh, have a a breakdown in coverage and then uh, they score and that put ASU really behind the eight ball and it took uh a lot of effort for ASU to come back from that. Uh, fortunately, though, for for what Chip Lindsey was trying to accomplish, uh, it ended up working for them.
0: Well, that is the Tim White effect coming into play for ASU. White is an outstanding punt returner for ASU, but more importantly, he's got great fundamentals. He catches the ball, he tracks it well, and it's just it it's really remarkable how much his absence impacted asu in the special teams capacity of the game as opposed to offensively
1: well they jim jacob brimhall was a guy that they looked at as a walk-on as a as a kick return or punt return i should say specialist last year before the emergence of tim white in that respect and, and DeShawn hayes you mentioned also was not was an option there but he had some mistakes uh, as a punt returner but you there's no really excuse for not being able to put somebody back there that you can just fair catch the ball. And when you when you know Tim White's not going to be able to play or is very limited, uh, that's the whole thing. There's not a lot of – you're not going to return a lot of punts for long gains. It's more about uh, not having any mistakes there. Uh, they ultimately decided, hey, we just need to put Tim White out there <laughs> and – he even tried to return one. 16-yard return. Yeah, which the coaches were probably like, what are you doing, man? But he, this is a guy, I watched him carefully before the game in warm-ups. He didn't even do anything. He literally just stood there, high-fiving guys, <laughs> walked over to the sideline. And then they're like, in the middle of the second half with ASU losing by a couple scores, they're like, hey, Tim, why don't you go out there and go catch the ball? And he did fine. But, man, between this and uh, ASU needing to burn the red shirt of Cole Cabral, as a short snapper, uh, there's just been a couple things that have um, been very eye-opening that probably shouldn't be the case.
0: And when you have seniors and Zane Gonzalez and Matt Hawk, who are really the best at their respective disciplines in the conference, there's no reason that ASU shouldn't be the top overall special teams unit in the entire Pac-12 and really one of the best units in the country Gonzalez had a fantastic performance he was the reason ASU was able to pull away with a victory from UTSA two kicks of 54 yards both his career long kicks in that game he missed from 53 yards also hit from beyond 45 that's nine points right there beyond 45 yards how many teams in this country will will not have a kicker kick a 45 yard field goal this season
1: I don't know the answer to that but I'm sure that there are a number of them that won't and we saw in this game Zane Gonzalez break the Pac-12 record for scoring. The first ASU kicker to ever have more than two 50-yarders in a game, and he did that in one half. Yeah, three, uh,
0: three of the five longest kicks in ASU history now belong to Zane Gonzalez from the 2016 season.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. And The knock on Zane Gonzalez was outside of 40, he was spotty, uh, but that hasn't really been the case. He did miss a 53-yarder, and then after the game, <laughs> he like— What He said he was disappointed or he he regrets not being able to make a 53-yarder to help his team. And I was like, wow, that's why this guy is such a good player. He also, of course, is uh, the leading uh, touchback kicker in in, uh, the country. So certainly without his performance, when ASU bogged down and needed those really long field goals... Uh, nine points out of ASU's 32 were him, they probably don't have a chance to win the game. and and, uh, So it was just um, appropriate probably on a night that he broke some records, tied the ASU record with 81 field goals in his career of Zendejas that, uh, that uh, he was instrumental in the team's win.
0: Now these are two kind of meaningless anecdotes, probably, but no. I, I will I will say this: there was one kick that Zane Gonzalez had on the kickoff that Texas San Antonio actually brought out of the end zone, and I thought ASU's Not co- well. I thought ASU's coverage unit was somewhat surprised. Yeah. That, that there was a returner bringing the ball out. They love to run down and just celebrate Zane Gonzalez and everything that he's able to do on kickoffs, but the unit did look surprised.
1: I'm going to trump your first anecdote by saying that I was on the field at the end of the game, and there was nearly a fight between two UTSA players over one wanting to return a, a ball that was nine yards deep and the other saying you really are dumb for thinking that we're going to – because they did try that one time and they didn't even get the ball to the 10-yard line, I don't mm-hmm. believe. Um, you just can't do that, and and that's that's a weapon. That's what Zane Gonzalez is. Even on the last series when they needed a better starting position, it they, they really couldn't do it. And they ended up at the twenty-five. From a field position battle, he is such a huge weapon.
0: And here here's my other anecdote. At the beginning of the season, we outlined maybe five or six players who we thought were ASU's best NFL prospects. And Zane Gonzalez wasn't on that list because he hadn't Whoops. kicked a fifty yard field goal. Our bad. And his fifty-four yarders were good from probably sixty. The at second, least one. Of them. The second
1: yeah. one in particular was was sixty plus. Yeah. And, the, and you know, it's in the dome, but still a lot of NFL games are in similar conditions. When he's that accurate from inside of 45, and then he has the leg to hit from 60, that's a guy who's going to get an opportunity at the next level.
0: Lou Groza Award Special Team Star of the Week, this, the Pac-12 Special Teams Player of the Week, Zane Gonzalez, was instrumental in ASU's victory. Really, Special Teams was the most important aspect for the Sun Devils because of what Zane Gonzalez was able to accomplish, but let's transition to the offensive side of the football where Manny Wilkins really came back to earth this week after tearing it up, looking like the ASU quarterback of the future forever against texas tech <laughs> wilkins went a very pedestrian 15 for 31 he looked like a qb making his first road start and he really looked like what we anticipated him to look like this season
1: and let's put the proper perspective on this uh, there was maybe 20,000 people that were at the Alamo Dome. There was nobody in the upper deck. They don't even sell tickets in the upper deck. It's a loud environment because it's concrete, dome, reverberation. But it's nothing like what he's going to face from a hostility standpoint with crowds coming up later on in the conference, even at Colorado, but especially at USC when they go to Washington and when they play in Arizona. That's going to be a totally different sort of a thing. Now, the, the difference in teams defensively and the approaches between Texas Tech and UTSA was so contrasting. That's a huge factor in what led to Wilkins' struggles. With Texas Tech, you had a soft zone. His first read was pretty much always open. He was able to deliver the football accurately and on time, no real pressure, and he did a good job, right? He, he made the throws he needed to make. This game, he was presented with uh, looks from the defense that were disguised, harder to identify, made him more uncomfortable, made him uncertain with his eyes. Uh, Sometimes there was pressure coming through the middle that he could visually see. I think as a result, some of his throws were rushed. He uh, evaded the pocket when he shouldn't have several times. It just was a pretty good job by UTSA defense to keep a young quarterback unbalanced in the way that you probably should be, and disguising coverages in a way that maybe made him feel like some of the some of the throws that he thought were, were there weren't going to be there, and so I, I just think there there were a, a couple times. I know a third and five where he had two open receivers and he didn't see either one of them. Uh, then of course he had a number of overthrows or underthrows because UTSA was playing press coverage uh, or bump into the in, on, at the corners on the outside, and th- that was getting beaten by ASU's receivers. But a combination of that. Maybe messing with the timing to some degree, and him not being comfortable in the pocket, and not uh, being consistent with his throwing mechanics, his platform—all of those things that kind of happen for younger quarterbacks. Uh, there were just a lot of missed opportunities that were left out there. Of course, there was the 57-yard, I believe, touchdown to Nikhil Harry. That was a, a great throw. Yeah, that was one of
0: his better throws of the night.
1: Yeah, but it was, but but it was uh, that the one I'm talking about of the two was 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 called back because of the Evan Goodman. False start, but then he had the other one that was at the end of the second half, which was which was a really nice throw. So there there were some good throws, but there was probably four or five big play opportunities that were left out there on the field that he wasn't able to convert on, and that also was a a difference between ASU being ahead early or or on pace early with UTSA through the early part of that third quarter, or maybe ASU being ahead by a couple scores. Now
0: I think one of the things that we should note with Wilkins' performance against UTSA is the coverage shells that UTSA showed. They were almost daring Wilkins to throw it over their heads, beat him on the perimeter, and every single throw, pretty much every single throw from Wilkins, was to the edge of the field and to his outside receivers. And that's a theme that we saw in week one against Northern Arizona, and it continued into the Texas Tech game as he didn't really look comfortable throwing the ball over the middle of the field the first two weeks of the season, but he didn't have to against Texas Tech.
1: The, the Roadrunners had a savvy game plan, which basically was load the box up, bring their safeties down to alignments that were tighter to the line of scrimmage, probably eight to 10 yards, I would say on average. And that made it less uh, incentivized for ASU to run the football inside in the first half in particular, and more opportunity for Manny Wilkins to exploit the the defense on the outside. So it wasn't that he was looking to the wrong places. It was that even when they were, were beating the corners with Nikhil Harry or Cam Smith, they weren't getting the ball there accurately. And then there were some times when UTSA and situationally would mix in a single high safety who was playing zone over the top as a center fielder. That's where, Wilkins through the interception. It was, it was second and 23 after a penalty. They had just thrown a, a ball that he missed on to Nikhil Harry, who was behind the defense uh, that was rushed. And then he, he throws another one uh, to, uh, to Cam Smith, where the safety had a really easy play to come over. The ball needed to be deeper and further outside uh, toward the boundary, but it wasn't. So yeah. I mean, I don't think that, that there weren't a lot of opportunities open over the middle third of the field, especially earlier on in the game. I think maybe later on he missed some opportunities. There was a Gammage who was running open on a seam where he was splitting two safeties at one point that I that I saw that that was a missed opportunity. But you have to take what's kind of given to you, but then you have to also have to execute what's given to you. In the first half, it was pretty spotty. Something that might
0: help put this performance in perspective and put Wilkins' overall performance in perspective from the first three weeks of the season is what Louisiana Tech accomplished this week against Texas Tech. Yes, Texas Tech gave up the 68 points to ASU, made Manny Wilkins look like an All-Pac-12 performer of the future. Yes, Louisiana Tech this week, with a career backup as a quarterback, making just really probably his third career start, scored 45 points, had over 300 yards through the air, and had two receivers reel in at least seven catches and at least 130 yards so
1: and three touchdowns with no interceptions
0: clearly texas tech's defense is not the barometer that you should be measuring your success against
1: very bad defense they're gonna get lit up repeatedly in the big 12 they'll have to score 50 plus points to win almost every game except for maybe like kansas or somebody like that right uh and and so yes uh we told people after that game that things were going to be a lot more challenging for Wilkins in the ASU in the passing game, and there would be a lot more bumps in the road along the way. And uh, I don't think that we'll really have a complete grasp of where he's at until we see how he fares at the Coliseum against USC in a couple of weeks.
0: So last week, after we talked Manny Wilkins, we spent about 10 minutes talking Kalen Bellage and his eight-touchdown performance. Deservedly this, so. This week... The number two offensive player that we'll talk about is Nikhil Harry, the freshman wide receiver who made one of the most impressive grabs for a freshman that you you said you've seen in a long time.
1: For a wide receiver, as a true freshman, you really have to go back to like Derek Hagan to find anybody who made a big impact. Uh, and I don't remember Hagan having any catch that was as breathtaking as that. He was more of a possession receiver, very good, skilled. But that was a heck of a play the defensive back had Harry's right arm basically held onto as Harry had to catch the ball with his body and his left arm as he was diving in the back of the end zone on the last play of the half for ASU from scrimmage. And then he got his other hand off of the the hold and got it over to secure the football. That's an unbelievable uh, play. The, the only other play that was mentioned that was maybe on par with that from an ASU freshman was Todd Heap as a true freshman in the back of the end zone going back more than 20 years, I guess, uh, or about 20 years to – I think that was against Washington. I remember Mm -hmm. the game. It was in the south end zone at Sun Devil Stadium where he just reached up and you know, snared the ball out of out of nowhere. That, that was one of the plays that earned him the nickname the Golden Retriever. <laughs> for there's one of your anecdotes, but uh, but yeah, w- what we're seeing from Nikhil Harry is uh, certainly validating of his uh, ranking as the top-rated prospect the day he signed in the class. It's an illustration of why it's so important to get four and five-star prospects. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you need those guys to be able to win. They're, they're just flat-out difference makers. And it also hints at what's possible for him, not only this year, but moving into the future, given that he is, the, um, by some accounts, among the best-performing wide receivers in the country. Like, PFF has him, number one. I don't think that's taking defenses into account, so it's probably <laughs> a, little, a little bit skewed. But nonetheless, it's a pretty remarkable accomplishment. He's certainly looking like one of the best ASU receivers in history in the making. Now,
0: this morning you asked me, do I think Nikhil Harry is a potential first-round draft pick in the future? And I said, "Uh, I don't know, it's three games in. I probably need to wait to make my evaluation. And then you told me, that's not what we're in this business to do. We need to make our evaluation.
1: Correct. (laughs) You can later on say you were wrong or you were right, but we're forecasters.
0: So... I I looked at the first round of draft picks this year, and you see guys like Will Fuller, Corey Coleman, Josh Doxson. I think that Nikhil Harry is... I I knew I
1: missed Will Fuller in my fantasy draft.
0: (laughs) I think that Nikhil Harry is not quite on the same level as those players yet because of his speed. I think that that'll be a diminishing factor in his draft stock. So right now I'm saying he's probably somewhere in between that 25 to 40 range of draft picks for 2000 and let's see he would be 2008
1: 19? 19
0: yeah 2019 At after the early years yeah
1: uh yeah i think um here's what is great about Nikhil harry really good size competes for the football uh very good ball skills i think his route running is pretty good for a freshman in particular the downside the question marks would be more does he have the speed to separate on the edge? Uh, at the NFL level and um, is he going to be able to be uh, dynamic in space after the catch things of that nature Uh, and we'll see how he progresses and develops in some of these areas Uh, when you compare him to Jalen Strong for example which I think is an important comparison Jalen Strong arrived at ASU uh, after a couple years where he was in JUCO, bounced around, was a sophomore, wasn't in very good shape, wasn't a very good route runner. By the time he left ASU, he was probably an average route runner, but he still was talked about as a potential first-round pick. He ended up falling into the early third round. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nikhil Harry is has a equivalent athleticism, I would say, very similar in that regard for their size, Sim- similar athleticism for their size. I think Nikhil Harry will be a better route runner than Jalen Strong was when he uh, was in the NFL draft. So that's an advantage, and I think he will have more film uh, that will he be able to demonstrate. Now, will people see a ceiling to him three years down the road as far as what he's been able to accomplish, or will they still see an upward trajectory to what, what he's been able to accomplish. I think that's what's going to be a, uh, become a question. He will, at that point, have put up some huge numbers unless AAC's quarterback play just isn't good enough to allow that. Uh, my guess would be, and there's so many, it depends on the draft class and how many receivers are first-round grades. You have some years now where there's seven, eight, nine guys who are capable of going in that realm. He'll probably be among that sort of group. My guess, Guess is he ends up being a second-round pick if he leaves after three years. But, again, that comes down to team need and how many other guys are in that spectrum. And I could easily see him with additional development from an athletic standpoint move up into that first round
0: exactly and, and with receivers it's such an interesting market all it takes is one team to like a player i, I think right. the ravens took Prashad perriman uh in the first round last year and that was so really surprising there's some head scratchers that, so that happen out so all yeah. it takes is is one team f- to fall in love with Nikhil harry three years down the line and there he goes he becomes a first round draft pick and i would have to eat my words on saying he's an end of the first round early second round guy but i'm i'm Really impressed with what he's been able to accomplish so far, and I think one of the determining factors in his draft stock is going to be the fact that he's worked with Jay Norvell, who's such a technical coach at wide receiver.
1: And uh, and to this point, we already see that Nikhil harry's is a very good blocker. Mm-hmm. That matters a lot. Uh, For ASU fans, what really is important to stress here is we're talking about a guy who's going to be a three-year starter and a really good player, maybe even one of the most productive ASU receivers of all time when he leaves. And whether that's a first-round pick or a third-round pick, I don't see it being much lower than that unless something really happens and uh and he's going to be playing at that next level for sure i
0: think Nikhil harry is also a good player to talk about when we can frame the overall work that sundevilsource.com does and i, I want to transition here and talk about our premium podcast and our premium content that we put out at sundevilsource.com when you look at Nikhil harry chris you've been tracking him since he came onto the scene in, in high school at chandler sophomore in year probably and that's three years of tracking him there now he comes to ASU. You had an interview with him the day that he, that he announced his uh, verbal commitment to ASU, right. signed his letter of intent to come to ASU. There was all sorts of analysis done there. We followed him through fall camp, and you're going to continue to evaluate him on a collegiate perspective and provide perspective about his pro potential through the next three years at ASU. This is just one player, and you do this for every player. With the sun devils you do this at every position group at asu and this is all behind our premium paywall if you become a subscriber at sundevilsource.com all of this information and analysis becomes available to you and there's really so many benefits to learning about the team from this perspective
1: so even like the casual fans who follow this stuff know that Nikhil harry was a four or a five star prospect depending upon where you looked and they look at recruiting rankings and things like that that's uh you know not a not a deep level of immersion but um, that kind of stops once these kids sign and go to a school you're not seeing the same level of evaluation from a, a, a national site or anything like that I mean you may you may get some uh, feedback tidbits here and there about how somebody's perceived as it relates to the NFL or something like that but not across an entire roster spectrum, not individual player grades and player capsules and evaluations of every single player and how they fit into the scheme and how each position uh, is a strength or non-strength for ASU and and, uh, fit the scheme and all those sorts of things. And certainly that's just one of the many components that you're getting that are more on the membership side of what we do and, and go far beyond what you're going to get in a podcast.
0: We'll talk more about our, our premium content later on in this episode, but I want to transition from Nikhil Harry to another prospect that you're very high on who made his first appearance of the season with ASU and talk about it in the framework of the tight end group. And that's JJ Wilson, who was suspended for the first two games of the season and came out and made a big impression on his very first play of the game.
1: Yeah, I believe it was his first play They were uh, in a, uh, alignment where they had two uh uh, jj wilson and then also a receiver were basically just offset the line of scrimmage and two-point stance and they came out firing on a stretch run play and jj wilson took a defensive back and literally just buried him he might still be there you know (laughs) underneath the grass somewhere at the alamo dome and uh maybe he was letting out some frustration for being suspended and missing those first couple games and when you talk to cody cole or Raymond Epps uh, or other players on the team one of the things that you hear is that they know that J.J. Wilson has got more potential than other guys on the roster, 6'3", 255 pounds or so, but moves phenomenally well, very athletic, probably the, the most dynamic pass catcher that they have. But he also can do everything else that you want in, from a blocking standpoint. Uh, so getting him out there I think was, was big. I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up siphoning some reps away from Raymond Epps perhaps as we go in the next couple of weeks. And then even when Cody Cole – Uh, is gone after this year, I wouldn't expect any drop-off. In fact, I think that uh, as long as J.J. Wilson is doing what he should be doing, that position should be elevated. And that is like one of the other things that we talk about a lot uh, in the premium content that we provide. Now, the tight end group was not targeted
0: much, if at all, on Friday night at UTSA uh, in the Alamo Dome. Manny Wilkins never really looked for Cody Cole, Raymond Epps in the passing game after having some success going to Cody Cole on a pair of wheel routes against Texas Tech and the tight ends playing in the middle of the field really just being asked to block on some perimeter bubble screens on the edge, but they're not involved in the passing game right now as much as we might have thought they would be earlier in the season.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably a combination of factors, including what you have comfort level-wise from um, ASU's offensive coaching staff, Chip Lindsey. He's more of an 11 personnel, not as much of a – he's more air raid, not as much tight end stuff. But they are using those guys in some of those um, formations. They had uh, four wide with the tight end being one of the wide receivers – uh, out there and they just ne- didn't necessarily target him and then part of it was the way that UTSA was playing uh, in the box they were kind of loading up 7-8 guys and they were giving up more of the perimeter of the field I do think that Lindsey is a coach who takes what's available to him and so there probably will be opportunities now that we've seen um, a couple games of film and, and the way that teams have defended ASU, there's always maybe an overemphasis of, of trying to stop those things and then that opens up other things that they haven't really shown as much of and that may be more of the tight end uh, op, uh, possibilities as far as the route runners and catch, catchers of the football. I think that the, the capability remains there and then probably another part of this is Manny Wilkins and where he's tended to want to go with the football. He does seem to have uh, wanted to be more uh, perimeter-oriented with how he's delivered the ball. It's it really been the flat on a lot of RPO stuff or swings, and then it's been some of the out stuff or maybe an increasing number of fades, what we've seen with Nikhil Harry, uh, even the back shoulder fades, which we didn't see much of early in the season, but then a little bit more, more recently. And then it's been the vertical shots. But really everything's been kind of the numbers and more outside. And I, I do think depending upon how uh, defenses play, with some of their zone coverages, we, there may be opportunities to exploit the seams and in a little bit more than we've seen thus far in subsequent games.
0: That's funny you mention uh, the phrase RPO because there was an entire thread on our board dedicated <laughs> to the ESPN announcers. People were bothered by liberal that. usage of uh, the term RPO. By the way,
1: rewatching the game, I actually I don't I'm sorry I don't know the name of the uh, the color commentator. Mm-hmm. I thought that he did a better job of actually, from a football standpoint, evaluating what was going on on the field, more so than you see with some of the guys that have bigger name, recognition, value, Mm -hmm. cachet, former players that don't talk about things that they probably should be, like Explaining what the coverage was and why something happened, so I actually so the production value of the game was poor, <laughs> yes. right? It was that was definitely yes. that was poor, but I think if you had good production value combined with this yeah. uh, analysis, I think it actually would have ended up being pretty good.
0: I agree because you don't hear the term RPO on on most broadcasts no. because most color commentators don't want to get into the the schematics of a run pass option it's and too superficial and the different coverages. You, you never hear commentators say, Oh, they were in cover four there. They were in cover three there. And so that does add value to a broadcast. And I think that's a good point. This guy was pretty good. I'm going to write a letter. <laughs> but, but, the, but the real reason that I brought this up is to segue into Chip Lindsay's play calling uh, yes. and what he was able to accomplish, especially in the second half of this game. ASU was down 28 to 12 and the Sun Devils never stopped running the ball.
1: That was, a, to me, one of the most important things of the whole game. I I look back at some of the Mike Norvell games where ASU was trailing or very close, and there tended to be a little bit of an abandonment of the run at times or maybe a play designs that were trying to get too much back in one play. Uh, and that isn't to say that Mike Norvell wasn't a good offensive coordinator because he put a lot of points on the board at ASU, and they won a lot of games. And so... That, that is a fact that it is inescapable. But I really uh, admire a offensive coordinator who, middle of the third quarter, and you're down 28-12, and he's just firing off runs and trying to body blow uh, this UTSA team when they were giving that up. Uh, because they then at that point in the game had tried to stop some of the big plays. So they had made an adjustment and he adjusted and they were just content to just go down the field and, and, uh, put points on the board, score a couple touchdowns there, bring ASU right back into, into, uh, the mix and never got too far ahead of himself, never got stressed out, if, if they had started to throw the ball around more on some low-percentage things, you easily, easily could have had a couple punt situations there in the third, middle third quarter to the beginning of the fourth quarter. That could have put ASU in a much more difficult situation. It would have put Manny Wilkins uh, more uh, responsibility on his shoulders that then could have maybe not gone well. So hats off to Chip Lindsay for for – Doing a very good job in the second half of the football game.
0: 34 plays in the second half for ASU, 22 runs, 12 passes. ASU was down 28-12
1: to 12 with 8.20 left in the third quarter. Demario Richard carried the ball 14 times in the second half, and he put a licking on a few UTSA defensive players. Caleb Balaj had eight carries, and Manny Wilkins didn't need to throw the ball that much. Mm-hmm. He threw the ball just, just occasionally here and there to keep... The team honest and, and move the chains when they needed him to. And he had a better half in the second half than the first half. But the whole offense flowed a lot better because of the ability to have balance, and UTSA was really uh, on its heels.
0: So let's segue to the defensive side of the ball for ASU. And the big takeaway from this game, Todd Graham talked about it at his Monday afternoon press conference, was the move of Laiu Mokiola to the Spur linebacker position. Chris, you highlighted it in your 10 takeaways pieces, the really defining defensive game plan move of the competition for asu when Mokiola went in to replace marcus ball at spur and today todd graham said that Mokiola didn't even take a practice rep at spur right asu just knows they can count on him at that position
1: he doesn't need to practice probably at all no really i mean but this is something that we're going to talk a lot about in the premium podcast that we're going to do later on in the week um uh, Part of this is designed to what type of an opponent that you're playing, what they like to do. You have a, a wide spectrum of teams. The air raid teams are on one end, and the other end are kind of your run spread teams. Uh, and then in between that, you have a mix of pro style, sp- pro style and spread and, uh, and, and hybrids type offenses. Um, Marcus Ball was struggling in this game with some of the motions and shifts and side adjustments and communicating how that stuff was supposed to be handled. It gets a little bit football wonky, and, and we'll talk about it more subsequently, but uh, they just felt like they needed to make a change there. Really, it, it came after uh, so Hayes had the, the, the bad punt return that mm-hmm. he fumbled. Then the next play from scrimmage, they hit a wheel, a wheel route that was a touchdown. Play action. 24 One yards. of my favorite play calls of the game. From really nice. Team. That should have been um, uh, handled differently defensively from ASU, but they didn't identify it. Ends up being a touchdown. And after that, they just said, look, we're putting a stop to this. They moved Lyo Mochiola from Bandit to Spur. They inserted Jamarcus Rhodes uh, into the lineup, who had played a little bit earlier. Mokiola, of course, has a hamstring injury. They've been kind of trying to limit his reps or at least keep him fresh. So they were splitting reps earlier, but then... Uh, they The rest of the game, mokiola was out there at Spur, and guess what? Uh, UTSA punted the next uh, three times or four times, I four believe. Four times, yep. And then after that, they had their last possession, which they had a turnover on downs. I want to say that UTSA had 20-something yards. 21. Yeah, 21 yards from scrimmage in their final five series. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that and then also the change that they made to start uh, spying Dalton Sturm a little bit more. Uh, were the two main uh, uh, factors. They Those those adjustments came too late in the game from ASU, but they nonetheless were uh, critical in ASU's defense, uh, giving the team a, a chance to win the game.
0: Now, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. Marcus Ball had seven tackles. Why do you mess with success?
1: So the tackles happened because the, he was able to be targeted to begin with. And... Uh, if, if, you, if you execute your assignment, if you're a cornerback, for example, and you execute your assignment, they don't throw the ball your way, right? The same is true if you have a coverage assignment and you're that alley defender who's a hybrid player. If you're doing your job, they don't target it, and then you don't have to be there to make a tackle on a play. So, yes, Marcus Ball had seven tackles, but probably half of those, the ball shouldn't even have been thrown his way if he was uh, executing his key read assignment correctly and uh, and moving out to take that receiver more quickly because Dalton Strong would have gone somewhere else with the footballer had to scramble. Here's a big takeaway. Laiu
0: Mokiola just three tackles, but led the team with two passes defended.
1: Correct, because he was in position to make the, the plays or prevent the throws from, from being made to begin with. So we already talked about
0: Jamarcus Rhodes playing Bandit safety, but Chad Adams really didn't play very much nope. at Bandit safety in this game. What does Rhodes bring to the team from a defensive asset that Chad Adams doesn't?
1: Well, we've talked about this for the whole year really and that is that chad adams is a marginal player as a bandit he's not you know he's he's at the bottom of asu's defensive starters uh that's one of the reasons why they were looking at moving mochiola to the bandit position in addition to trying to keep him healthy because he's had the multiple sh- shoulder surgeries and they wanted to maybe go with mochiola with marcus ball on the field or somebody else at spur and not have to play chad adams or somebody else at at bandit but uh, Chad Adams started those first couple games and really didn't make as enough plays as a percentage of his reps or, or wasn't in a position uh, to do some things that would have been nice for ASU's defense, and so they just decided, hey, we we have Jamarcus Rhodes. He's a Juco guy that we recruited to be either a corner or a safety. Let's give him some opportunities in these games. He played a little bit against Texas Tech, and I thought he did pretty well. He's just a longer, bigger-bodied guy who can cover, but it's also going to be able to to fill and be physical on that boundary side against the run. And, And moving forward, just given what we've seen from Marcus Ball and Chad Adams, I think the most logical thing is... To especially against some of these teams that are very pass-heavy, uh, play Mokiola at that uh, spur position. And Todd Graham said uh, in the Monday press conference that They're leaning toward doing that. Yeah, he
0: was. He never likes to give away schematic changes, but the way that Todd Graham said that they're leaning toward doing it, it sure sounds like Mokiola will be playing spur for the foreseeable future. Well,
1: well, the the film doesn't lie, and people are going to take a look. uh, Future opponents are going to look at Mokiola, and they already know that he's played that position, and so it's not something that you can hide or disguise in any kind of way. So there's no reason to not just. Come out and say it.
0: And Jamarcus Rhodes nearly had the game-sealing interception for ASU. I thought he did. I was on the
1: field, but I <laughs> couldn't see his feet. Illegal
0: touching. He stepped out of bounds first, came back, made eh. the catch inbounds. So I, I saw the replay. I thought that it was probably the right call by the refs. I was surprised, though, that they actually executed that because I didn't know that they focused that closely on illegal touching in replays. Well,
1: he probably was doing something right because there were no first downs to be had <laughs> by UTSA in, in the in that uh, final twenty five or maybe twenty eight minutes or so of the game. Mm-hmm. So so they're probably gonna stick with that and I don't think we'll see as much of Chad Adams moving forward. The, um it depends on the, the the type of opponent. Like there'll be some games where we see ASU go heavier there and that's something else we're gonna talk more about in the premium podcast. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the final defensive point to talk about, ASU finishes with pressure numbers that we've become accustomed to seeing from a Todd Graham defense. Four sacks, ten tackles for loss, but Dalton Sturm got away from the Sun Devil pressure on a handful of occasions. Took off on that long touchdown run right before the half, and then uh, ASU elected to spy him later on in the game, and that's when the defense, along with the move with Mokiola, really started to turn the tide of the game.
1: What really caught my attention from the post-game press conference there in San Antonio was Todd Graham saying, "We knew that that Dalton Strum uh, designed quarterback runs or scrambles would be the number one thing that we had to account for, but yet they didn't really spy him early on in the game the way that they had with Patrick Mahomes, the talented Texas Tech quarterback, a week earlier, and and I thought that was that was that was huge uh, because." Uh, Strom had more yards than everybody else combined rushing for Texas, for UTSA, I think maybe even three times as many yards as everybody else combined. They had no rushing attack outside of Sturm. Most of that was scrambles where they just weren't able to get a sack or a tackle when they should have had opportunities. I think we talked before the before the tape in this that JoJo Wicker had 1.5 sacks, and that probably should have been between three and four sacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ami Latu, I know, missed him once. You had DJ Calhoun, Karan Crump, and other defenders who all got a hand or more on strum in, in, the, in the offensive backfield only to see him get outside and, and scamper this also carry was another area in which marcus ball was um not at his best because he on several of these were that were designed was trying to get inside of a blocker when really his objective is to get outside to force Sturm back, Sturm, I should say, back inside to where he has help defense. And instead, a couple of those were broken outside where there was no additional containment defender and you have man coverage. So maybe Hayes or whoever's down the field quite a ways and has to work back to that position. Uh, and there were a couple other plays where the cornerbacks didn't have great awareness or they carried guys too far when the, when uh, when Stern was already running and they should have adjusted to that. But really, there was too much missed, missed opportunities, too many missed tackles, missed sacks, not identifying him, not spying him. And that was what to a large degree, coupled with the turnovers, kept UTSA in the game for as long as, well, throughout the whole game, really. So ASU
0: escapes with a 32-28 victory, a 16-point comeback for the Sun Devils, their largest comeback win on the road since 2002 at San Diego State when Andrew Walter led ASU back from a 22-0 first-half deficit. Todd Graham and the Sun Devils are 3-0, though, and they escaped with a four-point win over UTSA. Remember, a few years ago, Arizona went into San Antonio in the Alado- Alamo Dome and won 26-23, and then went on to win the Pac-12 South.
1: Yeah, and still, I say, ASU 3-0. I thought they'd probably be 2-1 and because I thought they would lose to either Texas Tech or UTSA. That, that was really a 50-50 proposition, uh, ASU's never got started 3-0 and ended up with a losing record that we know of, mm-hmm. and um, and so now it becomes a question of whether our preseason forecasts were off or not. Uh, I still think at the end of the day, this team, despite a Pac-12 South that's very competitive if that's even a word with, you know, <laughs> it's what, open. Yeah. Well, yeah. Very open to, to, to be challenged by ASU. I still think it's going to be hard pressed to end up with more than seven wins.
0: Seven wins, you're saying that's four and five in conference play right now. Three and six still likely. I mean, so many different games can go every which way. Let's give our normal update on the Pac-12 scores from the weekend. Some games that jump out right away. Stanford's 27-10 to dismantling of USC. That game was never close.
1: Stanford's, uh, ASU's fortunate to not have to play Stanford (laughs) this year again. Uh, USC still in this transitional mode. And that's a very winnable game for ASU on the road, but I still wouldn't say ASU's favored by any stretch.
0: UCLA, 17-14 over BYU, a BYU squad that barely defeated Arizona. Another team in UCLA that hasn't quite put all their talent together just yet.
1: Not seeing the offensive pieces really work well with Josh Rosen to this point. They just haven't been able to get much firepower going. And... um, they really need that to happen. The new offensive coordinator and structure and things that they're doing there, it's just not really clicking yet.
0: Utah got a 34-17 victory over San Jose State, which has not defeated a power conference school on the road in, I think it's last 25 games. But nevertheless, the Utes' offense comes to life a little bit, which is something that Utah definitely is excited about considering how open the Pac-12 looks and how good that defense can be.
1: Good offensive and defensive line played, they don't have great skill athletes on offense. Special teams is good. The whole key for them is if they don't turn the football over, they're going to probably be in or win most games.
0: Arizona with a 47-28 dismantling of a awful Hawaii squad.
1: Yeah, Hawaii's brutal. <laughs> um, would Grambling State be Hawaii? I mean, I, think, I don't know. I, I, Arizona still has a lot of question marks, and that team is is going to be hard pressed to be bowl eligible. I would say this year.
0: Now up in the Pac-12 North, Nebraska defeated Oregon 35-32. Hey, wait, what about Colorado? I'm, I'm saving them for last. Okay, great. <laughs> I'm saving them for last for a reason. Nebraska 35-32 over Mark Helfrich's Oregon squad. Mike Riley gets the victory there.
1: Yeah, Oregon went with the two-point conversion thing on every score and it didn't work out so well you got to be pretty confident that you're going to be converting those on more than a 50 percent clip otherwise you can't do it i thought that mike riley out coached oregon uh and it put into perspective why he wanted to go to nebraska because he doesn't even really have it firing all cylinders there as far as implementing his scheme getting his personnel and they're already at least on par with oregon uh Really like him as a football coach, and also you can probably tell that Oregon is looking at a couple of losses at least this year.
0: Three other games, just to note quickly, Oregon State 37-7 over the Idaho State Bengals. Washington State and Mike Leach back-headed for the college football playoff after a 56-6 <laughs> win over Idaho. And then Washington uh, completely upends Portland State 41-3. Portland State's coach had the best quote of the week, saying that he would mortgage his house on Washington winning the national championship. Yeah, I was, wonder, what?
1: I w- I was wondering aloud on Twitter whether that would be a 15-year or a 30-year commitment that he was subjecting <laughs> himself to uh and, and that that for for you to say that that was a better quote than mike leach lamenting the quality of the the uh, millennial generation <laughs> is is really saying something because those guys were out, trying to out one another um yeah the north is pretty interesting right now uh, Cal, the team that is coming to
0: ASU this week in what should be a 70-70 to 70, uh, end-of-regulation game uh, with a 50-43 to 43 win over Texas that almost didn't happen because Vic Unwary dropped the ball on the goal line That's at the very
1: end. One of the worst rushing defenses I've ever seen in the Pac-12, but yet Webb can stand back there in the pocket and sling it, and now they're starting to get a couple of their receivers developing and building after is the guy's last name hogan yeah yeah 39 catches through three games he is it hogan yeah whatever his name is (laughs) their their receiver is balling yeah everyone at asc will know his name after this week and honestly not even that great of an athlete but he's just like really good at what they what they do and they have a couple other guys on that uh team that are emerging they lost like four really good receivers from Mm -hmm. last year but you gotta be next man up when you're playing an air raid scheme that has to throw the ball that much so really impressive on offense defense wow this
0: no. this will be a fun premium podcast we have this week talking about this game.
1: Could go 100 points, maybe. <laughs>
0: and the final team to talk about, Colorado put a scare in Michigan at the big house. And the Buffaloes look like they're back on track. They lost 45-28. No idea about Sefo Lufau yet, whether he will be healthy. And that's, of course, the key to their season. But if he is healthy, Colorado is a team that could really surprise
1: people. They are really well coached. Todd Graham said it. Earlier, he said, and a lot of ASU fans are like, "What? Like we ASU's never struggled against Colorado. What? How's that a problem?" But what they do schematically with their pro style stuff, and they they protect with seven. They they play action you down the field, big shots for their two uh, impressive receivers, uh, Ross and and Shea Fields. They run the ball pretty effectively. They they play really solid base defense. This may sound crazy, but I'm just going to throw it out there right now. Colorado is a candidate to win the South this year. I buy it. They are, they are a candidate. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but they they have the ability to compete with all these teams quite easily.
0: As long as Cefo Lufau is healthy.
1: That's key. Yes. Yeah.
0: Chidobe Awuzie yes. could win the Pac 12 defensive player of the year.
1: Really good defensive player. And they and I'm telling you, they have a few of them. They're good at the linebacker level. Their defensive backs are are pretty decent. And they have enough up front to be able to be physical against the Ron. And so, man, they're good. It's a good team.
0: Send the hate emails to me for the Colorado bandwagon that Chris and
1: I are clearly on. And remember, the bank account emails, those (laughs) go to Kevin, those go to me, and then the junk emails, those go to Kevin.
0: (laughs) Any final thoughts on this week, ASU 32, UTSA 28, before we flip the page and uh, focus on ASU Cal preparation?
1: No, just uh, football a lot of times comes down to uh, turnovers, especially bad ones in your own territory, uh, and, and just how you operate. Uh, Schematically. So I I think um, ASU was fortunate to get that win, but they also fought and earned the win. And now they have a great chance to go for now.
0: Well, the final thoughts that were not mentioned on this podcast will be mentioned in Chris's. Upon further review piece, which is headed for ten thousand words, it is It'll going be to be longer. it is going to be the most in-depth piece you read about ASU this week. That is for Sun Devil Source subscribers. It will be posted on the Devil's Sanctuary after you finish rewatching the game. Chris, you're at halftime, six thousand words already. Every single play broken down. Personnel is an, is analyzed. Green uh, green text for good plays, red text for bad plays, so that if fans just want to skim it, if people want to just read it like that, they can do so. But every last detail is in there.
1: You're going to be able to know the coverage on every play, who had a breakdown, what was available to Manny Wilkins that wasn't hit, where the max protection failed, pretty much anything that you really want to know about what happened in that game. And every game is compiled on a every-play basis In uh, upon further review.
0: So that will do it for the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. Be sure to tune in later this week when our Sun Devil Source Premium Report podcast is out. We'll be previewing the ASU Cal showdown for the ages coming up this Saturday at Sun Devil (laughs) Stadium at 7 p.m. That will probably finish around 1 a.m. West Coast time, knowing how much passing is going to be taking place. Don't worry. We'll still be up
1: at 4 (laughs) a.m., Finishing up our content. The
0: content will be there. going to be there. For Sun Devil Source publisher Chris Cartman, I'm your host and editor, Kerry Crowley. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Sun Devil Source Report podcast.